welcome to the Wellbeing and Career World podcast. Today I'm delighted to be chatting with Richard Rosser about storytelling. Richard is a filmmaker, author and master storyteller who honed his craft on the hit TV shows Grey's Anatomy, Chicago Med, This Is Us, MacGyver and let's hope they bring this one back so we can see Jack Bauer 24. He has written award-winning books, taught story workshops to over 15,000 participants and guest lectured at numerous universities including John Hopkins, Columbia and NYU. Richard's passion for the creative process led him to develop programs that empower individuals to express themselves through AI-enhanced storytelling. His most recent book, ChatGPT Simplified, offers non-tech professionals a unique approach to unlocking the incredible potential of AI. I'm very excited. Uh, very well, welcome to the podcast, Richard Rosser. How are you today, Richard? I'm doing fantastic, David. How about you? Wonderful. So let's get this started. So where are you right now on planet Earth? I am in Los Angeles, California in Pacific time zone. Very nice. And to make everybody jealous, um, what's the weather like? You know, it's gorgeous, I have to say. Um, there's not a cloud in the sky. It's blue skies. It's about 72 degrees. And um, when we finish this, I'm probably going to go for a run, but uh, I'll have everyone in mind with all the climate, uh, all the various climates around the world as I as I live my day. <laughs> oh, that's very, very kind of you. Keep us in your hearts and in your soul and your, your mind and your memories, as, as we like to say. So are you a runner? Are you a general runner? Is this a daily thing or are you just kind of showing I'm, off because it's a podcast? Mm-hmm. No, no, no. I, I, I run. Uh, I run about half an hour every day. I just I love to run up through the hills. Uh, there's a there's a college uh, within about three blocks of us. And I love to just go over and run through the campus. It's it's just an incredible way to way to get out and, and let loose. OK, cool. And what about I mean, are you into the uh, what they call resistance training as well? Are you doing a bit of pump? Are you pumping the iron as well? Or is it just a running? Nope, just running. And I actually shouldn't say running. I should say jogging. Jogging. <clears throat> because I'm not, you know, I'm not running. It's not like I'm, uh, I, you know, I, I, I jog and I, when I go up hills, I get closer to uh, to a, a gate as opposed to a gallop. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's fair enough. No, that's that's acceptable. I think a lot of people would like to live in LA, to be honest with you. It has, it's, uh, it has that... Um, what do you call it? It's kind of romance. I know the Irish specifically, a lot of Europeans, they, they love traveling to the USA and always one of the main spots is New York or LA or Washington. So we always see those in the movies, but I'm boring you now, Richard. So I told our listeners a little bit about yourself. So can you tell me a little bit more? So let's start from the beginning. Sure. So uh, I grew up in Oklahoma, which is in the middle of the United, middle sort of middle South of the United States. It's called the Southwest. And, uh, that's where I grew up. I, I, my father was a, an amazing storyteller. He loved to tell story jokes. Um, you know, he'd at dinner or a party, he'd launch into one of his jokes. It's two or three minutes to get to the punchline. And the punchline very often was a groaner, right? But, right? but that wasn't really what mattered about the story. It was the fun of the story and the physicality that he brought to the characters and fun voices and sound effects. And so, I learned early on about the fun and power and value of, of storytelling from my father. And, uh, and so as I, as I went to college, I got interested in film and filmmaking. And there was one class at my college. I took that class and made a short film. I made a, a black and white animated little movie. 
And uh, it was three minutes long, claymation. This is back uh, back when before computer animation. And my professor said, I can't help you. I know nothing about animation, but if you want to do it, go ahead. And so I made this film and he said, you know, this turned out pretty, pretty good. You should send this to some festivals or competitions. And so I did. And it ultimately ended up winning a student Academy Award. Wow. So I thought, you know, if these folks think I have some talent, I should pursue this. I ended up getting accepted to NYU, uh, New York University. So I lived in Manhattan, uh, went to school. And then when I graduated, I uh, ended up finishing, uh, you know, I started working in the business and I was doing music videos and commercials. And then I segued into narrative filmmaking, fictional filmmaking, you know, feature films and then TV shows. And I really, I really enjoyed that because there was much more, uh, there was much more to latch onto in terms of story than there was in the commercial and music videos. I mean, you know, they they can have shorter stories, but uh, you can get much more involved in a a feature film or especially now with a multi-season TV show. And uh, but I was traveling a lot. We had young kids and and I was complaining to a director I was working with. And he said, ah, stop your belly aching. If you want to if you want to never travel again (laughs) and sleep in your own bed every night, then move to L.A. and just be in the TV business. Right. And and so my wife said, hey, I'm sick of the winters here on the East Coast and all the snow and everything. Let's try it. So we moved to Los Angeles and uh, and we've been here uh, ever since. And and I got I got really lucky. Um, I got, uh, I was working with a production manager and a producer and they, they called me up and said, Hey, we're doing this weird show. It's called 24. It's, uh, it's kind of strange. It's every hour or every episode is an hour in the day. And it's, it's, it's going to be presented in real time, but it's not a reality show. And it's a fictional account of this, ter- you know, anti-terrorist group. And, um, and I said, all right, well, sounds interesting. And, and then it became this zeitgeist in, uh, you know, from 2001 to 2010 or so, it became this zeitgeist show that really dominated uh, TV. And, and in fact, David, it was one of the first shows that people actually binged. Uh, right. and then, now, now, just to set the scene, this is before streaming, this before you know this is back when everything was dvds and uh so the show aired in the first season we didn't even know if we were going to get picked up for the for the back half of the season and it became so popular that folks started watching and the and the folks that wanted to catch up they there was no way for them to catch up because the episodes had aired and and you know it wasn't streaming you didn't have the ability just to go hey i want to watch that on command and so when the dvd came out the dvd set that next year, as the second season was unfurling, folks were going to Blockbuster Video. Remember Blockbuster Video? Oh yeah. <laughs> and and they would down or they would they would rent. I want to say download because it's so you know it's so common now. But they would rent the DVDs, and you could rent I think four DVDs in a little box. Take them home and binge eight episodes of 24 and people would come in bleary eyed to work on Monday and say, what on earth happened to you? You <laughs> partying all weekend? No, no, I was watching 24. And uh, so it became this crazy, crazy thing that that everyone was watching and, and binging. And so it was it was really the first show that folks were were able to binge and that the, the, I mean, and it was so, so incredibly addictive, that show. And uh, so, yeah, so so I've worked on other shows. I've worked on This Is Us and Chicago Med, uh, uh, Grey's Anatomy, the MacGyver reboot, the Melrose Place reboot. So and then a whole host of shows that you and no one else would have ever heard of. 
<laughs> but but how did it make you feel, Richard, to be part of that? I mean, to be part of the success of uh, 24 or MacGyver or This Is Us. Uh, I mean, how, how did that make you feel? Oh, it, it, it's an incredible feeling. I mean, there's there's David, there's really sort of multi layers of feeling. I mean, first of all, in, in you know the the film or entertainment business is a it's a it's a very difficult business right the hours are long it's difficult difficult to get into uh it's very competitive and so and then ultimately you know you get on a show and you don't know if it's going to be a success or not i mean a- any show that you get on or any movie that you work on unless you get hired to do you know mission impossible 78 um <laughs> you, you don't know you don't know if it's going to be a success and so you you work on a pilot and it may or may not get picked up. And then if it gets picked up, you may you may get the, a, a front order for the front nine or the first nine episodes. Right. And then you do those and they have to make a decision whether or not to pick it up for the back nine or the back, you know, how many ever. And and so it's a continuous process of just, you know, putting yourself out there and, and working. And so when, when I've gotten on shows that have been very, you know, very too incredibly successful in the case of 24 and Grey's Anatomy and This Is Us. It's it's a, a fantastic feeling because you feel like, okay, I'm doing something and people are actually going to see it. And not only are they going to see it, but they're going to they're going to enjoy it and talk about it and, and and live through it and reflect on it. Whereas, I mean, I you know, I've done a whole host of projects, pilots that didn't get picked up and feature films that you know, that had a limited run and art house film or art house cinema. And when those, you know, you tell people, oh, yeah, I worked on this. And, and you might be incredibly proud of what you did, but there's no spark of recognition because people may have heard, oh, yeah, I think I heard about that or or hmm, doesn't ring a bell. And and so it's it's nice to work on something that uh, that people are excited about. And they're talking about because it it really sort of validates uh, i mean it validates what you're doing right in in terms of a career and and um you know it's not all just about the paycheck it's uh, it's about uh, creating something that that has resonance and that lasts and and like when 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 you mentioned there the buzzword is picked up so when you do a tv show or a movie is it a case of that investors come along they they read a script or is a script already made and then they're hoping then after, as you mentioned, say nine episodes or eight episodes, that somebody will come along like a network will will buy the show. Is that how it works? Well, in, in, it's it's a little bit different for feature films than it is for TV. Let's take TV. So TV, you'll have a writer who writes a pilot, and a lot of times they'll write a pilot on spec, right? They'll just write it on their own. And, uh, and then they'll pitch that to the network, and the network will – I mean, it's it's very fragmented these days with Netflix and Amazon and, and Apple TV, et cetera. But but basically, the, the the idea is that a writer writes a script, they pitch it to the network, or they pitch an idea to the network, and then the network says, "Hey, we we want to pay for this script to get written." Right. And so they get to a point, and then they say, "Okay, now we're going to." And there are all these terms, right? Now we're going to green light the project. And or or that oh they you know say okay we're gonna we're gonna give you a pilot order and so the writer then gears up and they cast and they you know and, and they and they shoot the pilot and then a lot of times the network will test the pilot with a test audience and they'll they'll figure out they'll take a look at all the various pilots and projects that they have going on and figure out how that's going to come together for their fall schedule 
And again, I'm, I'm talking sort of about network TV now because that's for years, that was the norm. Right. Uh, but with, again, with streaming services, the, the process is a bit different, but it's, it's basically the same, right? Yes. So then, the, then the, the network or the studio then says, okay, uh, let's, you know, let's go to series on this. And they may order six episodes. So you'd end up with a total of seven, including the pilot, or they may do an order for 10 or it just really depends on their finances and what they're looking to, uh, and, and what they're looking to do with the actual show. Uh, cause some shows are limited series. They have four episodes. You know, a lot of English shows have six episodes. Right. Um, now 10 and, and 15 episodes are sort of the norm for, uh, American shows made, you know, that, that are, uh, airing on Netflix and Amazon, et cetera. So it's, it's a, it's a bit difficult to explain the exact process, uh, because there's so many different options and possibilities. Uh, but basically that's it. And then, and then, you know, if a show is very popular, then the network will decide, okay, let's, let's go for a second season and, and then a third season. And every once in a while you hear about a show, say for instance, Grey's Anatomy, where they've been going, you know, 18 years and, and the, the studio and network say, okay, you know what, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, uh, sign up for another three years of this show. And they do that in part because the, you know, they can lock in the actors, the actors rates and, and contracts and all that. So it, it, it can get pretty complicated pretty quickly, but basically, uh, you know, we, we, as, as the folks that are creating these shows, you know, again, we, 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 uh, go out there, put ourselves out there, we get on a show and we cross our fingers and hope that, uh, the actors are going to have a chemistry and that the writing is going to resonate with uh, audience members. And that it gets picked up and picked up and picked up and and uh, like I was on 24 for uh, I think eight eight years uh, and um, you know it was it was a great run it was a fantastic run and and anytime I mention that show people know what it was they may not have seen it but uh, it's 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 sort of got a place in history in terms of it uh, it has a lot of catchphrases. Uh, it was it was being shot and aired when there was a lot of stuff going on with with terrorism. And uh, in fact, we were filming episodes five and six when when uh, the bombing of the uh, World Trade Towers happened. Oh, wow. And, uh, OK. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was it was very intense. And I mean, we were making a show about terrorism and uh, they they had to rework some of the script because uh, because of sensitivity in terms of of uh, what had happened with the trade towers. And, and say for a show like 24, right, when you have the, the, the star of the show, in terms of uh, the writing and the chemistry, do the actors ever kind of say, look, I don't like the way this is written or can we modify oh. this? Can we change this? Or is that just not not allowed? Uh, you know what? It, it depends on the show. It depends on the actor. It depends on the writer. Right. Uh, I know that the writers for Gilmore Girls and uh, Marvelous Ms. Maisel, they are very, 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 very specific okay. about how their lines are written and how their lines are, are delivered. And uh, I have you know, friends who have worked on those shows and they say, you know, nothing has changed. And right. that's the way. <laughs> uh, but then, but, you know, on 24, um, there was no one who knew the character of Jack Bauer better than Kiefer Sutherland. Right. And uh, and so, you know, there were times when he would alter lines just sort of on the fly. And sometimes he'd do it mentally. Sometimes he'd sit down with the with a writer on set, 
Sometimes he, you know, so it, it, it really varies with, uh, and, and over time on, again, on that show, when we went eight, nine seasons, um, you know, it certainly didn't happen the first episode necessarily, but, but by season two or three or four, or by season seven or eight, I mean, same thing with, uh, Grey's Anatomy, the, the writers, I mean, the, the, uh, the actors, once they get to a point where they have really, in essence, become the character, right. uh, you know, they, they have a really good sense of what works and what works for the character, what drives the character. And so it's a, it's a real union between the actors and the writers to, to keep moving these characters forward in situations that the audience is going to believe and, and feel emotion for. Well, I mean, Kiefer Sutherland is an amazing actor. I think one of my first movies I've seen with him was, was Fatliners. Do you remember that? Oh, oh, absolutely. That was that amazing. amazing film. Yeah, he was, he was, uh, he was really scary. I mean, from, you know, from like a, a 10 year old kid standpoint in uh, in Stand By Me. And yes. yeah, he, he's had some amazing, amazing movies in his career. Yeah. There was, there was oh. even one show recently, I think Designated Survivors. And then it was like, I think they did two seasons and it just disappeared or three seasons. And uh, no, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a fantastic actor. Can I just move it back then, Richard? So with regards to, um, you know, if the show's going to be picked up and is it in case anybody's listening to this pod, uh, podcast and they're wondering like, you know, we, we spoke about how competitive it is, the industry and so on. So sometimes in the early days, you know, as part of the team, whether it be actors, writers, uh, even the backroom staff, are they, is it all paycheck to paycheck, but just hoping until you get established in the industry? Yes, for the most part. Yeah. I mean, you know, there, there, are, there are folks who are what are called above the line. Right. And a lot of them, uh, you know, they may have a contract with uh, with a studio for a development deal. Uh, but for the most part, everyone, everyone, it's 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 kind of complicated because in America, people are considered employees, but you can be an employee for a month on a project or two or three months on a project. And there's a difference between that being that and a freelancer, a freelancer, a lot of folks in the film business used to be freelancers, but, but they've had to change the rules for tax purposes, et cetera, not to get into too deep to, into the weeds on that. But, yeah. but basically, basically the entire filming crew and the office crew, we're all freelancers. You know, we're, we're a bit of uh, sort of the, the carnival employees moving from, uh, moving from carnival to carnival, town to town, uh, with the exception in, in TV. Uh, if we're lucky enough, we get, we get on a project that uh, is in our town in Los Angeles and we can sleep in our, in our own bed at night. But, uh, you know, I, I have done a, a bunch of traveling. I, I was up in Vancouver a year ago working on, uh, uh, Michael J. Fox movie. Okay. Michael J. Fox movie. And, um, and I was shot in Atlanta and Pittsburgh and, and, uh, in Chicago and Chicago med. So it's, um, it's a really, really interesting, uh, approach, uh, you know, because sometimes you're at home and sometimes you're, uh, you're in a place and I have seen some of the most amazing places and things i've uh david i've been down uh in nuclear submarines filming oh wow <laughs> uh, i've i've been uh, i've done helicopter work i've done car work on some of the, some incredible you know roads doing uh doing car commercials um and done some uh, some really fun incredible traveling and and uh being up in vancouver we were shooting uh out there uh on on some ferries and uh, did a commercial up there 
just right after the Michael J. Fox thing. And uh, so it's it's an incredible life, incredible career uh, that, um, you know, and at the same time, you're hopefully you're working on something that sees the light of day and that really entertains folks. And what about the family part of it? I mean, how would your wife or, or your kids or relatives or how would they manage that? Because you always think that maybe from their perception as well, they think we're all having a great time while they're at home. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. So, exactly. So how did you manage that? Well, very carefully. <laughs> right. Very careful. That's the best thing. Never look happy. That's, <laughs> that's first of all, my, my wife does not work in the film or TV business. Uh, right. she, she works in a different industry. So that helps. And um, and my kids, you know, I, I, again, uh, when my kids were young, I think my son was uh, was eight and my daughter was four when we moved from the East Coast in this move to, you know, stay home more. Uh, and so I got lucky uh, and picked up a bunch of shows over the years that were based in Los Angeles. And I've done some traveling in the past couple of years, uh, just as other production centers, uh, Atlanta has opened up in Chicago. So um, I've done some traveling since, but, uh, but you know, it, it takes work. It takes work to, uh, but, but look, doesn't anything, I mean, there are all sorts of careers. There, there are folks in the military who travel all the time or who are on, on tour, uh, you know, going on tours of, of uh, you know, of uh, military zones. And, and there are folks, you know, sales folks who are on the road uh, on a day in day out basis uh, on, you know, weekly, monthly, uh, going to different cities. I mean, it, with the pandemic, the whole zoom thing has really helped folks be able to uh, hunker down at home and spend more time with family, I think, uh, and cut down on the amount of traveling Overall, I would say uh, a lot of it's, you know, some of it's come back, a lot of it's come back, but it's, I think it's been nice for folks that, uh, that tended to do a lot of traveling prior that they, it, it didn't require them to travel quite as much. Let's step back a little bit, Richard, again. So in relation to qualifications, you mentioned at NYU, if, what do you need to study or what can you, if you were to go back in time and tell yourself, your younger self, right, you should have doing this or should have doing that, would you do anything different? And if not, what qualification would you recommend or suggest to anybody going to college or university to help them have a career similar to yours? Wow, that's a great question, David. Uh, one of the things that one of the things that I did while I was in school was I was I was working concurrently while I was in school, and that really really helped. Right. Uh, again, I was I was going to school. I went to grad school at NYU Film, and uh, so while I was work while I was studying at NYU, I worked for a couple different commercial companies. I worked on some feature films. Uh, I worked on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre part two. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that was the summer of, I think it's summer of 85 or 86. And um, I was assistant set dresser. And basically I was the chief blood applier on all, right. all the walls and you know anything that was, that was set oriented that needed blood on it from uh, from the ghastly ghouls of uh, of the uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That was my job. And so that was that was a nice horror film that I wore. That was my first feature film. But um, I, so I would say for folks who are who are 
in school right now and trying to figure out, you know, okay, how am I going to make that transition from school to, to working in the industry? Do as much as you can to make contacts and get yourself into the industry while you're in school. So the transition is easier once you graduate. Again, I was very lucky, but I was, you know, I guess I sort of made my own luck. Um, I'd been working for a commercial production company for, I don't know, I guess about a year, year and a half or something while I was in school. And I graduated and I, I went in and I sat down with the owner and I said, hey, I, you know, I've been working here freelance and, and I, I, I'd love a full time job if you have one. And he said, you know what, I just uh, I just had a producer move on and uh, we've got, you know, three staff producers. I need a fourth. Um, would you be interested? And, you know, the opportunity presented itself. Uh, and so I was able to, I was able to transition from having worked during school. I think it's really important. And, and this, and this isn't just for folks in the film business. I mean, I think it's, it's important, uh, for any industry there, there's a, there's a certain hierarchy in any industry. There, there, there are buzzwords and the lexicon of, of vocabulary that you need to understand conceptually, but also you need to understand from an experience standpoint, you know, you can, you can look at a glossary all you want, but it's only once you get on a film set and you hear terms like, you know, okay, uh, you know, we, we're going to get picked up or we're going to get a, a pilot order. And, you know, you, you, you understand, you start to understand the intricacies of how all the terms and terminology work within the actual experience of being on set. You know, I mean, there, there are certain rules on set, you know, the production assistants don't pick up Apple boxes and don't pick up C stands. Don't, you know, don't touch right. any, you know, don't touch any lights. Those, those, all that equipment has very specific people who move it and set it and, and uh, strike it and pack it and, you know, all the, all those kinds of things. So um, I would say get as much experience while you're in school as you, as you possibly can. And I mean, now with uh, it's a very different, uh, it's a very different world in terms of the ability to create content and get it out there. When yeah. I was, when I was in school, we, I was actually cutting, uh, I was actually cutting film. Um, and, uh, you know, it was right, right at the very tail end of that and, and working with video as well. But, uh, now, I mean, you can, you can shoot, edit and, and put a video out there on YouTube or Vimeo or any, any, any number of services. And you can get it out to a ton of people, TikTok. Uh, you can get you can get your content out to people uh, and huge numbers of people that uh, was just wasn't possible before the internet, before streaming, before all this technology came. So uh, and and David, you know the, the next thing that's going to change uh, is is AI. Yeah, uh, it's already starting to change how everything how everything works. Do you think, in your own opinion, I mean, we'll go more depth into depth later on about AI, but do you think AI will? create lot job losses possibly within the industry or will it just modify so. or change I, it maybe i think in, in the in the film and tv industry i don't think it's going to have much of uh much of an impact personally because there's a certain physicality to creating film and video and you need you know you need the folks with the lighting and and i, I mean at some point uh, you might be able to, you know, write a prompt that uh, spits something out of uh, Dali or Mind Journey that's a that's a moving picture, 
But um, I mean, look, I don't know about you, but anytime I see a movie and I'm looking, I'm, I'm looking for the sequences that are CGI as opposed yeah. to real. And you can tell. And, you know, unless it's incredibly well done, it takes me out of the out of the movie. It takes me out of the scene. Yes. And, you know, I don't know if that happens to everyone, but but, you, you know, you, you sort of bump on it and you go, wait a second, that doesn't feel real. And so I think the same thing is going to happen with actors and with footage that's created via AI. You know, I mean, look, the the, the first film that uh, the, the, the first computer generated movie, I mean, it was very rudimentary. You know, it didn't have the uh, it didn't have the subtlety and nuance that that computer generated imagery has today. And so AI is going to make some inroads, but I think that uh, ultimately people are really going to want actors to perform and they want to see real actors performing because you can tell when it's a real actor performing as opposed to some sort of a computer generated or even in, you know, even in uh, some of the, the films with De Niro and, and Harrison Ford, they're doing, you know, uh, anti-aging. Uh, yes. And it just doesn't, it doesn't look like them. It looks like they have this weird, uh, you know, plastic surgery look to them, but that isn't plastic surgery, but it's, but it's this new weird look to them. And so there's, there's only, there's only so far that technology can go before you end up, I mean, David, here's a good example. So way back in the, in the 1400s, let's go back in time. Um, there was the, most stories were told through the oral tradition. And you had bards and minstrels and, and, and you know, and, and then the, the printing press, the Gutenberg printing press was, uh, was invented, I think it was 1455. And all of the folks who were involved with the oral tradition, they freaked out, right? I mean, can you imagine? Yeah. They're sitting there going, I, what I do is I tell people stories for a living, whether I'm singing them or telling them or standing up in a square. And all of a sudden, this new technology is going to come about and people are going to be able to just read it on their own. Yes. Oh, my gosh, I'm out of a job. My whole, this whole oral tradition thing is gone. Well, hold on. Let's think, what are we, 600 years later or 500? Now yeah. we're talking about how many people do we have who are involved in the oral tradition? Well, we've got standard comedians. We've got musicians. We've got singer songwriters. We've got bands. We've got, um, you know, TikTok artists. We've got uh, YouTube folks. I mean, th there's an explosion of people who are continuing on with what you could really say is the oral tradition. Books are just as popular as ever. Now we have Kindle versions of books. We have paper paper versions of books. But again, there is so much room for all these different kinds of mediums of content. And so I think the people who are, I mean, look, AI will replace some jobs. There's yeah. no doubt. But I don't think it's going to be, especially in the in the in the entertainment business. I don't think it's going to be the sea change that everyone is is freaking out about. Now, I think you know there are studios right now. We're in the middle of a writer strike. I don't know when this is going to air, but right now we're in the middle of a writer strike, and it's soon to be a possible SAG strike. And they're all concerned about AI. And look, I think we should all be concerned about AI. We 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 want to make sure that 
in, in America, our Congress folks and senators are passing legislation that can help protect privacy, help protect against bias, help protect against hallucinations and wrong information, et cetera, right? But, but I also think that this technology is so incredible. And if you think about every big technological advance, the printing press, nuclear fusion, right? I mean, uh, vaccines, there are negatives mixed in with the positives. I mean, Mein Kampf was a book, right? Yes. But so was Harry Potter and the Pillars of the Earth and the Bible. And I mean, you know, there are so many more positive books than there are negative books. And there are so many more positive uh, aspects to vaccines and, and saving people from polio and, all, you know, all, all sorts of diseases. Um, sure, there are people who, who react badly to vaccines and nuclear fusion. I mean, the bombs at Hiroshima, absolutely horrible, you know, and but but at the same time, that has provided energy for a lot of people. So so with every big technical technological advance, there are positives and negatives. And it's going to be the same thing with AI. You know, I mean, sure, you could end up with a James Bond movie sort of scenario with a evil genius uh, using AI to disrupt water, or disrupt power, or, you know, whatever. Um, but uh, I mean, you can do that with a lot of technologies. And so I think that um, my, my approach with <clears throat> AI in, in, in general and ChatGPT in specific is it's, it's a great it's a great tool, just like a calculator is a great tool for a mathematician or an engineer. You can't expect someone to put a rocket up in space with a pad of paper, you know, and, and a pencil. So they need a, a high end calculator or computer program to help them figure out those formulas and in, in, in order to create that rocket. So I think it's, it's very similar in terms of creatives, folks who are using text and images to use text to text generative AI or text to image generative AI, but use it as a tool. And, um, you know, just as we would use a pencil, a calculator, a computer, a tablet, uh, because that's ultimately we're going to be able to take take that tool and create more interesting, uh, better creations uh, and, and, and more quickly than we can now. That's, that's a great explanation. I think, as you said, it's like anything else in life, as, as we progress along, you know, hopefully these things are, are used for the right purposes in a positive way to make our lives a little bit better. And I think so you've, explained, you've explained that very, very well. Well, what about then? We talked about the, the, the briefly about the, um, you know, the CGI and stuff like that. I mean, when you look at the likes of Tom Cruise with Top Gun Maverick and and uh, the, the new Mission Impossibles and stuff like that, I mean, we're talking, I mean, the stunts, in these movies are are phenomenal. They're out of this world. And that's, as you said correctly before, is that it's just so exciting seeing these live action, you know, kind of movies where the, there's pretty much no CGI whatsoever. Is, is that what excites you as well, Richard? Oh, absolutely, David. Absolutely. I mean, I watched Top Gun Maverick and I have to admit, I you know, I wasn't the biggest fan of, of Top Gun, the original. I thought it was a little corny. Yeah. Um, but I thought Top Gun Maverick was awesome. Yeah. Uh, I thought they did a great job from a story standpoint of, you know, working with the characters and, and the fact that Goose had died, et cetera. And, and um, but the stunts, you're right. It, it, there's, there's a certain there's a certain realism to the stunts that you, you know, when you're doing stuff CGI, it's sort of like animation. 
it's, you know, you have animated characters like Bugs Bunny and Rogue Runner and, and Wiley Coyote, where, you know, the big bomb, the big uh, uh, bomb falls on or, or weight falls on uh, Wiley Coyote and he turns into an accordion and he walks off and it's like, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> and, and, and you go, okay, huh? That's funny. That's funny. That can never happen in real life. It's a cartoon. But I think what's happened in some of, some of the bigger, you know, the Marvel universe and some of these movies is they get to the point where they have to one up themselves. And we have the same problem on 24, right? We had to one up ourselves every episode, every season. Yes. But you get to a point where you're, you're using technology to create scenarios that are unrealistic from a physics standpoint, a physicality standpoint, um, you know, it, and, and so you end up with situations or sequences that, uh, it, and it's not just suspension of disbelief, there's a difference in terms of suspension of disbelief, so that's a film term that that basically with suspension of disbelief, you're so into what's going on that you're willing to say, you know what, I'm willing to let go of the fact that he could have, you know, slipped out of those handcuffs in this way or that way, and yeah. and or and and so suspension of disbelief is one thing, but I think going full tilt to where the 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 effects and the stunts they're created with CGI or sometimes computer generated animation as well, that they just don't feel right. They don't feel real. And you sort of go, okay, I guess we're in a little bit of a little bit of a, a cartoon world, right? With some of these movies. Whereas when you look at uh, Top Gun and you've got Tom Cruise really piloting a jet at, you know, Mach two or three or whatever it was, yeah. <laughs> see that in his face. You can see that in the actors, uh, the physicality of him and the other actors apparently were all also in real jets, you know, they, they set it up. And, and so there, there's something to that, right? And I mean, you can go all the way back to Buster Keaton and the general, uh, yes. he was doing incredible stunts back in, I think that was like 1913. And oh, yes. It, yep there's there's a certain realism to it that you you know that that actor was right there and, and that's one of the things that we did in 24 was very often we and that's one of the things that the that the writers wanted to do was you know if you watch the a team you know you cut to the guys then you cut to an explosion and you cut back to the guys and they go whoa <laughs> and, and, and you say to yourself okay they were definitely not right next to that explosion because you know, I, I just I feel it, I know it, right? Whereas when we did 24, that was one of the mandates was we want to see Jack Bauer running at camera. We want to be close on his face, and we want that explosion to go behind him. We want to tie the actor and the character into the action, and and that's what really I mean. It was sort of a seminal change, certainly in TV, in the way that stunts and effects were presented. Because all of a sudden it wasn't uh, it wasn't schlocky. It wasn't uh, and, it, and it certainly wasn't it wasn't efficient in terms of the ability to, you know, from a monetary standpoint and a schedule standpoint. Uh, you know, we had to schedule Kiefer Sutherland to be in that frame with those explosions. And so it, you know, it complicated things, but it made for a much more interesting presentation of the sequence or the situation. And so I think when you brought up, you know, Top Gun, some of the Mission Impossible movies, Tom, Tom uh, Cruise is, is obviously one of, I mean, he does his own stunts. He learned how to fly a helicopter. He learned how to fly a jet. It's, it's phenomenal. So, it's, it's out of this world. It is. Yeah. It's phenomenal. But, but there's a realism to that that, that uh, supersedes 
CGI and AI and all this. And I, and I think taking your example and, and working with AI and CGI or AI and uh, ChatGPT, sorry, I think it's, it's going to be the same thing. Um, I, th David, there are people who are, who are deathly afraid of this technology. Right. You know, they're just anxious beyond belief. Uh, in, in, in a doom and gloom way, because they're listening to the media about, oh my gosh, it's going to rule the world. It's going to take your job away. It's, and and it's again, it's like any technology. There are going to be you know folks. There are going to be jobs that are lost. But the folks who get to the point where they understand how to use the technology, it's like the internet. When you get to know the technology and learn how to use it, then you become more employable. Right. And, and the other thing is, I think people think that uh, it's just going to reduce us all to sort of little robots. Right. Yeah. It's <laughs> just going to end up being mush. And, and certainly that's true. Like if, if I take a prompt now, a prompt for those of you who don't know about ChatGPT, it's, it's basically a question. Right. So I type a question into a prompt into a ChatGPT and I hit return. And it provides me an answer. If I take that prompt and I say, David, check out this prompt for, you know, you can write a blog post and you take it and you write a blog post. Well, even though our blog posts may be about different things, they're going to sound similar because we use the same prompt. And if you pass that on to three people and they pass it on to five people each, all of a sudden there's all these people using the same crappy prompt, right? Yes. However, if I take a prompt or you give me a prompt and, and I say, you know what, I'm going to, I love this, but I'm going to personalize a little bit. I'm going to say, add a little bit of energy, uh, add some humor, maybe some pop culture references. And all of a sudden that prompt is now my prompt because I've, I've really infused it with my personality, with my individualism. And so I think that's, that's an important point to remember is that the, the technology is only as good as the people are using it and how they're using it. And, you know, there's an old phrase that goes way back for computers, garbage in, garbage out. Well, if you, you, yeah. know, if you <laughs> garbage, you're going to get garbage out. And so, Ultimately, this technology is going to allow those of us who are creative and want to want to create and and, and uh, you know whether we're artists or composers or filmmakers, writers, it'll enable us to really amplify our creativity and heighten our individualism to the point where uh, we're just going to soar. It's going to be amazing. And and, and your book, uh, Richard, your ChatGPT simplified. I mean, what what is that generally focusing on? Is it is it chatting about or is it is explaining stuff that we've already chatted about or is it more involved? A, a little bit. So let me let me just explain. Um, so to all your listeners, I wrote a book. It's called Chat GPT Simplified. And let me let me first of all, let everyone know that I'm not a programmer. I'm not a coder. I don't claim to be one. And the way the reason I wrote this book is I wrote it for folks like me who want to understand how this technology can be used in a creative and a productivity standpoint. Uh, and so I wrote this book. It's it's completely non-tech, right? I took terms and I and I demystified, you know, I, I took them down to their base level. Uh, I again, I put in a bunch of pop culture references. It's it's a very quick read. One whole chapter is about uh, compares the journey to explore AI and ChatGPT to Alice exploring Wonderland. Right. the Cheshire Cat and the Mad Hatter. And, and so there are a lot of literary references. Uh, there's a lot of humor. And so it's a book that's really told uh, about, it's, it's about ChatGPT, but it's told through the lens of a storyteller. 
And, and so it's, it's very accessible. Anyone can read, I mean, you could read it in an afternoon or, you know, probably a couple hours. And um, what I do is I explore the possibilities of ChatGPT. And again, I explore them from various, various uh, mindsets, right? So I'm, I'm looking at uh, ChatGPT from uh, an entrepreneur standpoint and a business owner standpoint and a freelancer standpoint, but all from a creative view, as opposed to getting into the weeds about, okay, here's how you program this and, and uh, you can integrate it with this program. Uh, you know, I talk a little bit about some of those concepts, but it's not a book for tech heads. I mean, they, they can definitely get something from it, but it's meant for everyday folks who really want to dive in and find out how they can use this technology on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. It's for people like me, Richard. That's what you mean. People that there have you know, no David, clue whatsoever. Yes, it's, exactly. It's, it's, it's for people like you and me. <laughs> yeah, that's the best. Very politically correct. So so where, where can where can uh, listeners or if anybody wants to, to buy it, where can they, they obtain? Is it online? Is it downloadable? It is online. Or? It's on Amazon. The easiest place uh, to go is my website. It's AIexplained.ai. Again, that's AIexplained.ai. And uh, right up at the top is a link to my book on Amazon. There's also a link to a free book. Uh, it's ChatGPT case studies. And it, I, I find, David, that it's really interesting to, to read about, l learn about how other people have utilized technology, processes, et cetera, because that, you know, we take away from that, oh, well, if they used it for this, I could, I could you know, read, redo that and use it in my instance, all I have to do is just change a few words. So it's, uh, it's ChatGPT case studies uh, has a ton of uh, really useful information in terms of how other freelancers, entrepreneurs, small businesses, and, and big companies, big co corporations have used ChatGPT. I, I'm now, I'm on, I'm being very nosy, Richard, not that I'm ignoring you, but I'm on your imdb.com. So for, for, say idiots like myself is like imdb is that like a like a cv for people in hollywood or in the yes. movie business is that what it is i am imdb stands for internet movie database cool IMDb. i'm gonna yeah. i'm gonna explain uh or inform uh listeners of of the movies tv series shows whatever you want to call them around the world that uh, richard's been involved in as you mentioned recently a michael j fox movie still Grey's Anatomy, uh, This Is Us, Chicago Med, Grand. You can tell me if I'm wrong because according to you've been involved in a lot of stuff. Uh, Quantico. Uh, he named me Malala, State of Affairs, Kingdom, The Neighbors, Widow oh, Detective. Yeah. It Awake, goes on and on. <laughs> the Mentalist, The Defenders, Melrose Places. You mentioned Twenty Four, uh, MTV Reloaded. There's so much information. Obviously, the one I didn't mention was MacGyver. So I think I was, I was going to ask you about this earlier on. But I, MacGyver, as much as I loved MacGyver, were you ever wondering? All right, how how is MacGyver making a parachute out of a pair of underwear? I mean. Was that the goal of the show to make it as fun and as outlandish or just totally mad? Was, was that the goal of the show? The goal of the show was to create, uh, create a scenario where MacGyver could come up with these ways of getting out of hot spots. Yeah. And, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and have fun with it. And look, if, if you've got scientists, I mean, we're, we're not talking about 
well, I guess we're talking about saving lives because sometimes he, you know, narrowly escaping blown up by a bomb. But but yeah. <laughs> it's it's very different from a medical show where you're talking about, OK, this person has cancer. This person has a certain illness and we're going to do X, Y and Z to get them through it. Right. right? You want to be true to the medical profession in that case. I think everyone knew that MacGyver took license there. It, it was all done a little tongue in cheek. It had a good sense of humor. It was it was fun and, you know, at times ridiculous, um, you know, each of the gags was based in a kernel of truth. Mm -hmm. uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that if you had followed the exact steps, you would have gotten the same results necessarily. <laughs> right. I just wonder because I didn't know what he made. Like, it was a, did he have a toothbrush in one episode and he made it into something, maybe a weapon? I don't know. But it was just, it was, it's a, oh, don't get me wrong, it's a brilliant, brilliant he, he show. He did all sorts of stuff. I mean, he used in one episode, he used a mop handle as a vaulting pole to get over a wall. And, uh, you know, he, he he blew someone up with, uh, you know, putting a, a sodium crystal in a cloth and water. And that created some sort of a chemical reaction. And when he lit the lighter, it blew. You know, it's I, I don't think that it would have exactly happened that way for you or me. Only no, MacGyver. I don't think so. We would have been in. Uh probably death mode more than likely, but MacGyver That's right. had to That's do right. it. Uh, he, he was a man. So what, what about, you don't have to give any names, but what, what would be, well, you can give a name actually. Yeah. So who would be, do you have a favorite actor? Well, well when you say favorite actor, I assume you mean one of the favorite actors that I've worked with. Well, you can do both. Okay. So we, we won't, we won't kind of um, put you on the spot too much. So it gives you a bit of freedom then. So you can do both. Well, I, I, one of the favorite, my favorite actors I ever worked with was Martin Sheen. You're joking. You work with Martin. Wow. Yeah. I worked with him on a feature film. Uh, and this is years ago. This is, uh, um, you know, it was, it was after he had gotten sober from, from uh, finishing up uh, Apocalypse Now. Oh, wow. But okay. Yeah. He, he was truly amazing. I mean, he came on set, he interacted with folks. I mean, he, he came on set and he said, uh, the first thing he says to me is, uh, I said, you know, I'm Richard, I'm, I'm working here. And, and he said, now, Richard, where are you from? And as we were walking through the set, I said, oh, I'm from Oklahoma. And oh, yeah. we got talking. And then two days later, he comes up and he says, now, now, Richard, in Oklahoma, where? And I was like, oh, my gosh, it's like two days later, he still remembers where I'm from. Wow. And that was his connection point. And, uh, and, and ultimately, that's, uh, that's, that's what it, this is all about. I mean, I'm all about story and storytelling and connection. And, and so everything that, uh, that we've talked about, really, in terms of my professional career, of create, helping to create these, these shows and stories, uh, all the way through my book about ChatGPT, uh, I'm, I'm still working on helping folks be the best communicators that they can be. And uh, whether that's telling a story professionally as a TV show or a movie, or it's simply creating a TikTok video or a blog post or a, or a Twitter post, um, you can be as creative as you want. And so that's, again, that's one of the reasons I'm really excited about uh, AI and ChatGPT is because if we if we just take a deep breath, David, and we just and we stop thinking about oh my gosh, it's going to ruin the world. It's going to. I mean, sure, AI may become sentient, but that that may be 20, 30, 40, 50 years off if if it ever happens. And so if we say, how can we use this technology to make ourselves better communicators, to do a better job at what we do? 
Uh, and, and, and one of the cool things about ChatGPT is it's, 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 it is its own instruction manual. Right. So very few things allow you to go in and say, hey, how can I use you better? Right. Think about a, a coffee machine or a microwave or, uh, you know, any, anything, right? A computer, uh, it, you know, you, you can go in to help, but it's very archaic in terms of trying to actually get help. With ChatGPT, you could go in and say, hey, I, I want to create a podcast. How can I do that? How can I be better at interviewing folks? How can I, how can I be a better podcast guest? How can I, how can I create um, a marketing campaign? If you're a marketing person, if, if, you're a, uh, if you're a graphic designer, how can I get more clients? You can go in and literally ask ChatGPT anything and, and it will give you the most amazing answers. Now, some, sometimes they're not always right. And that's one of the issues. Right. But for the most part, uh, for the most part, it'll give you really, really incredible information from a brainstorming standpoint. And that's one of the coolest things about ChatGPT and, and AI, generative AI, is its ability to help folks think outside the box. So, so Richard, so if we go back to the, say the storytelling you mentioned it there and your passion, you know, to help people, what is storytelling in the most basic? explanation possible for, for, for a dummy like me. And then what hmm. are what is the formula? So we're not using say AI or chat GPT and we go back to the kind of the standard now possibly. Well what is that process? Well really storytelling is communication. That's it. Uh, we, we communicate through stories we have as human beings for what now 10,000, 14,000 years. And so our brains, there's, there, David, we could, we could spend an entire, another entire podcast episode on the brain science behind, behind storytelling. Yes. So let me, just, let me just throw out one term and I'll explain what it is, but it's just the tip of the iceberg. There's something called narrative transport. Now, think about, think about your favorite book or your favorite movie or your favorite song and just reflect on that for a second. Okay. And think about where you go when you listen to your favorite song or where you go when you're reading your favorite book, you disappear into that world. Yeah, that is that is narrative transport. And so in story in storytelling, we're always trying to get our audience. We're trying to transport them into our narrative. And if we're successful, you know, if you're watching an amazing TV show, your favorite movie on, on uh, Netflix or whatever, or you're reading your book, you know, the, your, your uh, oven can be dinging, your pizza's burning, you got someone knocking on the door because they're delivering something and you, you don't hear or react to any of it because everything has fallen away and you are absorbed. You have been transported into that world that is Harry Potter or uh, it's Jaws. It's one of my favorite movies. It's, you know, it's, it's uh, uh, Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett, which is one of my favorite books. You, you're taken and transported into that world with those characters. You feel like you were there. And so ultimately, we as storytellers, and, and storytelling is, is as simple as you're having lunch with a friend and they say, what'd you do this weekend? And you say, oh my gosh, I had this most amazing experience. We went to the ball game. We, and all of a sudden, you launch into a story. Right. Yeah. Eighty five percent of our communication on a daily basis is through story or some form of narrative structure. 
Story helps us understand com really complex concepts, and it also helps us remember and retain information because of how our brains are wired to understand and process storytelling from the, you know, years and years and years and generations of folks telling stories. And so ultimately story is about connection. If you can connect with your audience or viewer or listener, then you can be successful with your story. Now, story can be just entertainment, right? I mean, there are stories that are just simply entertainment. And you may say, I'm going to a feel good movie. All right. You're not really expecting anything. You're not expecting any big concepts. You don't expect to come away from that movie, you know, with with the meaning of life. Uh, you, you, you just it's a feel good movie or feel good TV show. Right. Or, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a sort of a feel good book, a summer read, as they call them. Well, there are other instances where you go to a movie or a TV show or you read a book for some sort of meaning, some sort of philosophy, some religion, some meaning of life. And, and the, these various mediums of storytelling, they can, they can help you reflect, they can help you persuade, uh, they can help you just laugh uh, and, and entertain. And so there are all sorts of possibilities uh, that you can accomplish with storytelling. You can, you know, if you're, if you're with a client, you're using a story to try to get them to buy your product or service. And so ultimately, storytelling is communication. And we want to try to get to a connection that uh, that that transmits emotion. And when I say emotion, I don't mean crying. And I mean certainly that's an emotion. That's a that's getting emotional. But an emotion can be happy, sad, uh, confused. You know, I mean, emotion can take any any sort of range. And, and so ultimately, you're trying to get your audience to come with you on the journey of your story and be with you in that experience. Uh, that will that will accomplish whatever whatever your story is being whatever reason your story is being told for. And the structure itself, Richard. I mean, in terms of you know, if somebody was writing, say, a story, uh, how do they, they? What would be the first kind of few lines that any story should start with? I know is it like a beginning, a middle, and an end, and does it have to continue like that all the time? Because you mentioned like shows like Twenty Four and stuff like that. They always had you on the edge of your seat waiting for the next yeah. episode, waiting for the next episode. So is, is well, that how it works? Yes and no. Um, it, it, you bring up a really interesting point, David, and, and, and here's a great example, right? Because of 24, 24 takes place in real time. The first episode in season one was midnight to 1 a.m. And then the second episode was 1 a.m. to 2 a.m. Now, because we're, we're, uh, we're filming and, and editing and presenting this in real time, right? We yeah. can't do flash forwards or flashbacks. Think about it for a second. Yeah. How many movies or TV shows have you watched where something happens and the character flashes back to their childhood or, or something that happened when they were a teen or even a young adult? And that was the, the basis of what got them to where they are now. Yes. We, we couldn't and wouldn't do that in the show 24 that's not that wasn't the language that we were presenting the uh, the concept within right now you may end up with other scenarios where you you uh there there i mean you know there are all sorts of movies that start off uh with uh, was it was there a movie called memento that takes place all in reverse right it was um 
It was one of Christopher Nolan's first Oh, yes. You're right, actually, yes. So all of a sudden, sometimes it's really interesting, David, to find out or, or see what happens and then realize, oh, my gosh, that was that was now and now we're going back and we have to get to get to where we are. And I know how it ends, but oh my gosh, the tension of what's going to happen on the way there. And think about I me mean, back to the future classic example, right? I mean, that's the whole premise of the, of the movie or the, you know, the, the trilogy is he goes back in time. He knows what happened in the, in the present. He knows where he lives and what, you know, who his parents are, et cetera, but he can't mess around too much in the past or he'll influence what what happened over time yes. and change what happens in in the uh in, in the in the present which is ultimately the future right so <laughs> it, it's it, it's very confusing for audiences when they but, but but the great movies though they are and and so the answer to your your question is a little bit complicated for beginners, I would say that it's best to approach something from a beginning, middle and end. That's the easiest way to present a story. And it's the easiest way for folks to understand a story, because that is how our brains have been have been, uh, you know, wired for, again, 10 to 14,000 years. Now, if you if your audience is willing to go on a ride with you on this journey, then you can start off in the middle. Where you can start off at the very end, and uh, and you can then go back to the begin what is the beginning and get up to speed so that there's tension about what happens and how the character gets to the end. But uh, or you could start with uh, a different character. I mean, there are all sorts of possibilities narratively. You can start with a different character. You can trade characters, right? I mean, there have been movies and TV shows where you start off with one character and then they sort of hand off from that character to the next character. Or or you have a TV show that shows the incident from varying points of view, right? Uh, I'm trying to remember. Oh, there, there was a show recently. Um, it was about uh, Spotify, I think it was. And each episode of that, uh, this thing is called The List, each episode of that show is told from a different character's point of view. Right. And they, the interesting thing is a lot of times what they would do is, is in shows or TV shows or movies, they would take an incident and it's like Rashomon, right? Eight different people see it and they have eight, eight different reports. But a lot of times they'll take the same incident and show it from these multi points of view and you see the same events unfolding. But what the interesting thing that the list did was they took the general events over time and they didn't duplicate the scenes. They would pick up sort of either just right before the scene that we'd seen from a different characters from point, you know, a, a, a character A's point of view. And then they'd pick it up with character B in episode four, just after. So it wasn't like we saw the exact same thing, but from a different character's point of view, we saw a different part of the story from that second, third, fourth, fifth character's point of view, which which is a very interesting take. But listen, for for a beginning storyteller, that's a huge, huge undertaking because it's it's uh, it's very complicated, and you have to consider everything from all those various points of view, and you have to consider the filming, and so it can it can get very complicated very fast. So I would say if you know, as folks are working on their storytelling techniques, <clears throat> it's important to, to do what you can, right? Practice 
the stories, the jokes, the a ghost story, the tall tale, the urban legend. I mean, there are all sorts of daily stories, you know, the story about the, your, your weekend fun. Um, you can practice those with friends and relatives and get to the point where you've got this technique quiver or toolbox of fun voices and sound effects and and uh, embellishment. Uh, and so you can do all that stuff and get to the point where you've got all these techniques that you can then use for other types of story, story in job interviews. Uh, if you're pitching a project, if you're asking for funding, if you're managing a team, or if you're, you know, if you're high, high up leader in a company and you're speaking to two or 300 employees at an event that you want to connect with. Uh, so it's really about developing those storytelling skills, tools and techniques, and then using those in, uh, in, in everyday storytelling and for personal use and then when you're at work, using them professionally to make make better points and be a better communicator. How would you handle them, Richard? Say you, you're, you're, you've you've written your story, you're going to tell your story, and you're you know you're asking friends, family, professionals, fellow colleagues for some sort of criticism or constructive criticism, and they all come back and they go, oh, "I hate it, don't like it at all." How do you manage that failure? Not that I'm saying it is a failure. But you've asked maybe 10 or 12 or 15 people, how do you get over that little bump? Well, hopefully the folks that are uh, that are working to critique whatever you've created are they're offering constructive criticism. Right. And there's there's a real there's a real um, you know, there's a real fine line. I mean, if you're showing this to friends and relatives. Uh, there are times when even a relative, you know, you might you might get biased one way or the other where they say, oh, this is absolutely fantastic. And um, someone else may say, oh, this is terrible. And both may be, you know, giving you a, a, a line. Uh, in one case, they're giving you a line because they think that's what you want to hear. And in the other, they're jealous of what you've written or created. And uh, and they don't want to give you the satisfaction of, of giving you a kudos. Right. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, I mean, having sat having sat in many, 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 many constructive criticism sessions uh, throughout my days in film school and then, you know, watching a, a, a cut of a movie or a TV show and listening to to audience viewpoints. Um, anytime you ask someone to critique something that you've created, you need to you need to frame their criticism within what you were trying to create. Right. So in other words, it, I don't know if that makes sense, but in other yeah. words, <clears throat> you want to make sure that the, the, the criticism that they're offering works within the parameters that you're trying to attain. Uh, I had I had a, this crazy film professor and his his solution for everyone's script was, well, you should put a gun in there. Right. <laughs> and, and I was writing, I think I was writing a romantic comedy or something, you know, and, and he said, well, you should put a gun in there. I said, come on, Tony, a gun, what is a gun going to do? And he said, you know, add tension. I said, that's ridiculous. I'm writing a romantic comedy. It has no place for a gun. But that was, you know, and so, so for me, I had to say to myself, okay, hold on. Who is he? And, and, you know, why is he suggesting I put a gun in this romantic comedy? So ultimately, I, I decided not to put a gun in the in, in my script. And, and I, I was right for what I was trying to create. <clears throat> now, that's the other thing is, as you get constructive or you get criticism from folks, 
you also have to you have to filter the criticism through the lens of what you're trying to attain, what your message is, what your theme is. Because ultimately, I mean, just like the gun, someone may give you a suggestion and you may say, well, you know, for for the version of my film that you're writing in your head or that you envision, that suggestion may be right. But for my project, it really doesn't work. And right. so you have to you have to temper or filter uh, suggestions from folks again, especially friends and family. Right. Because they're not professionals necessarily. I mean, sure, you may have an uncle who, you know, who produced a movie or whatever, who may give you some great advice or great criticism, but that's probably not going to happen, you know, (laughs) with a a few exceptions. Um, But I would say, uh, and then, and then building on that, what you want to do is you want to take, you want to sort of separate out the positives and the negatives. And you want to say, okay, what can I implement from the negatives that will help propel my project forward in the mode that I want to create. And then same thing with the positives. But you also want to look at the positives and a positive may just be, oh, I really enjoyed it. Or I I love this character. I love this sequence or the scene. Latch onto that because people tend to get very negative with themselves and with, you know, with 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 other stuff. And so it's it's easy. I mean, I think Facebook and LinkedIn or Twitter, or Instagram, they've all proven this, you know, negativity sells. Uh, yeah, and, and so it does. Yeah, you're right. It, it, it gets people going. It gets people talking. It keeps people engaged, um, not necessarily for all the right reasons. And so I, I think it's important as an individual, someone who's creating something, you need to try to latch on to positives and remind yourself that um, there are positives. Because I think our brains also, the stories in our brains tend to go negative and we tend to catastrophize. You know, we, we tend to think, oh my gosh, this is the worst script ever written. Well, I guarantee you that whatever script you're writing isn't the worst script ever written. It may not be that great, but you can always make it better. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. I mean, it's, it's, it's great talking to somebody like yourself who's been in the business for such a long time and it, it, it gives you know, younger people that are wanting to get into the business to to start, not even younger, but anybody who wants to get into mm-hmm. the business to write or, or actually, I was going to ask you there, the first assistant director, right? You've had the role of first assistant director on TV shows and movies. What is that? So <laughs> I'm an idiot, right? So uh, what is that, Richard? Okay. So the first assistant director, uh, I am neither an assistant nor a director. Oh, wow. Okay. That's what I am. (laughs) Right. I am essentially the chief logistician. Now that's a long word that basically means I organize stuff. I schedule stuff. I figure out uh, how on earth we're going to shove 10 pounds of crap in a four pound bag. So invariably, no matter what project you're working on, you never have enough time and you never have enough money. And so there's always there's, it's always a challenge to try to get done what you have to do in a, in an hour, in a day, in a, in a, in, in the time frame for an episode, uh, dramatic TV shows typically take eight days to shoot, give or take some are seven, some are nine, but, but basically it's eight days for an episode of dramatic t- an hour long dramatic TV. Wow. And so it's my job. Once a script is written that comes down, it gets handed out to all the department heads. 
you've got props and wardrobe and effects and cost, you know, and, and, and uh, background and, and all sorts of different departments, right? You've got the camera department, the grip department. And so uh, what I do is I'm in charge of all the organization and logistics and scheduling once that script comes down the pike. So once it comes down the pike, I work hand in hand with the director and together we go out with the location manager and the production designer, we scout locations. Between scouting locations, we're meeting with all the various department heads talking about, okay, what do we need for this scene? Or do we, you know, do we need 50 background players or do we need 100 background players? And can we make it work with 60? Uh, how are they going to be dressed? Where, where are we going to hold them? All the issues that are related with logistics of the day in, day out making of a, a, a film or TV project. And so then that's during prep. And then once we get into filming, I'm right there. I'm right next to the director and the cameraman, and uh, I'm sort of calling all the shots so that the crew knows what the heck's going on. I figure out what scenes we're going to film first uh, so we can be most efficient at the location that we've chosen. Uh, I'm working with the, the tutors if we have or you know, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the folks who uh, govern the kids' rules, and et cetera, if right. we're working with uh, minors. So it's a, it's, a, it's a delicate balance. It's a dance of uh, priorities trying to figure out, okay, uh, you know, we've, we've got uh, this long scene. Do we want to put it at the beginning of the day uh, or do we want to put it at the end of the day? And uh, is it a really, really important scene? If so, then we probably want to put it at the beginning of the day so we can get it shot and put a scene that's less important in terms of maybe compromising coverage, right? In terms of the amount of shots we get and the amount of takes we get. Uh, we may want to put a scene that's less important toward the back end of the day so we don't end up running late and going, oh, my gosh, we've got this huge scene that is the crux scene, the most dramatic scene in the in the episode that we, we, we have to go over time to get it. So it's it's a balance of uh, of personalities and uh, and logistics and priorities of trying to figure out how to make it all work. That's how do you how do you I mean, it's very it's exciting. It sounds very exciting. And I'm sure there's more to it than what you've explained. But I mean, how do you manage that stress, Richard? I mean, it must be, or have you learned to manage the stress as as the more more experience you've gotten over the years, or is yes, it a stressful no. job? I don't know. It, oh, it's a very stressful job. It, <laughs> yeah. there, there's, it's funny, David. There's an adage that uh, we we ads have um, ad short for assistant director. Um, there's an adage that uh, if we sit down, the whole thing comes grinding to a halt. And to a certain extent, it's true, right? I'm always up on my feet. Uh, there's a certain amount of energy that I expend in terms of keeping things moving forward. Uh, and I, uh, being on set and, and sort of running set from a logistical standpoint, I'm always looking for ways of being more efficient. Of, uh, of, you know, of, of ways that we can save time uh, so that we can ultimately get more time for the director and the actors to create the scenes. Right. And so uh, it's, um, you know, I, I think one of the best things is working on creative projects of my own. Uh, and, and that's, you know, what I've done with my book, ChatGPT Simplified. It's what I've done uh, I, between seasons of, of various shows. Um, I've gone to schools uh, and taught classes and programs and created curriculum for storytelling as a learning tool. And, uh, and it's been incredibly satisfying over the years, uh, working with st really students of all age. I mean, uh, originally I was working with elementary school, which is uh, 
you know, kindergarten through fifth grade or, or basically like six to say uh, 11 or 12 year olds. And uh, now I've really expanded. I'm working with college age students, uh, graduate students on the graduate level. Uh, and the work is, it's interesting because the work ends up being more theoretical. It becomes more about the, uh, the anthropology and the sociology and the psychology behind storytelling and what makes it work and how we can harness those facets of storytelling, uh, both in research and application on a graduate level. Um, but when, when I'm dealing with younger students, it's really all about the, the practical storytelling. You know, how do you tell a joke and make it funny? How do you tell a ghost story and make it really scary? And so, and again, we can then take those tools and fold that template over how we communicate in everyday life. Again, for a job interview, pitching a project, working with a team, and use those skills to be better communicators as we as we move forward, both through our personal and professional lives. And, and you feel sometimes, like Richard, you're you're like the the, the graceful swan that <laughs> the, the the legs the legs underneath are paddling away, but above it's just like wow, look how calm that swan is. I mean, do you always have to have a coolness and a calmness about you and a smile on your face that that kind of radiates to everybody else that if you're upset or you're angry I'm not saying you do but if you're upset or angry or agitated that that can radiate to the rest of the crew and it can make the day go worse so you kind of focus on that to say look i, I gotta be cool calm and and be like the swan wow david you you nailed it it's uh <laughs> that it's so true and so very difficult right? yes um, it's, it, that's a difficult, uh, it's a difficult to master. And, um, there are times when, uh, yes, I've mastered it. And there are times when I've, I've, uh, um, the, uh, the agitation has shown, let's just say. <laughs> but see, but see, the interesting thing is, Richard, is that we, we are all humans at the end of the day and we might go to bed. It's funny because we, we might go to bed with the greatest enthusiasm, but we wake up grumpy or we wake up tired for some unknown reason we, we do but it's kind of like trying to get that consistency going throughout the day i to be honest with you i don't think it's possible for anybody because i know myself there's days where i go to bed feeling i'm feeling i'm gonna have a good day tomorrow and you wake up no i'm not <laughs> you know what i mean there's nothing you can really do about it but i mean do your students realize the experience you have and how much they can benefit benefit from your experience do, do you when you're standing in front of students, well, no matter what age they are, I mean, do you feel a sense of have the times changed that they they can actually appreciate what you've done throughout your career, or is it just like, ah, oh, here's Richard? Wow, that's a really interesting question, huh? Um, let me think. So my 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 knee jerk reaction or my my first reaction is it it really varies on you know on who the students are yeah. and how I've been introduced. I, I, I do a lot of speaking at universities. And so when I get there, someone's in, in, usually introduced me as having worked on all the shows, you know, sort of like sort of like we've talked about at the beginning to tee it up in terms of my experience. But it's also interesting. There are times when I go into a room and people know virtually nothing about me. 
Right. And also, I think the younger the, the students are, the, the, the less they're going to understand what it means to having to have worked on 24 or Grey's Anatomy or any of these shows. Right. And so uh, but th there's a certain energy that uh, that I I guess I exude uh, or I try to exude, which is I love the creative process. Right. David, I absolutely love the creative process. And I love deconstructing that and helping folks figure out how to get through it. And so ultimately that is one of my strengths in terms of my approach to story and storytelling is I'm not just, I'm not just talking to people about the fact that story is important. There's a difference in talking about the importance of something and helping folks work through how to harness the power of that which is important. And so I, I like to think that I'm really making a difference in people's lives, careers, choices, uh, based on my ability to help them become better communicators and better, better storytellers through this journey of telling, again, telling very simple, practical types of stories to get better at storytelling. Again, jokes, tall tales, everyday stories that you tell at the, at the dinner table. You know, when, when you get home, I don't know if you have kids, but you get home and you say, okay, what, what happened at school today? Nothing. <laughs> that's, well, I, I do that still, Richard, in fairness. <laughs> okay. But that's an excellent opportunity for a combination of a tall tale and a joke, right? Yeah. Every, every story you, you spit out, it, it doesn't have to just be the truth of what happened and that's it, right? You yes. can embellish, you can have fun with things. And so that's part of it is, is, I, is I bring a sense of playfulness and exploration and discovery to this process of discovering the craft of story and storytelling so that then those folks can then use story and storytelling to rise above and be better communicators within whatever domain arena they're, they're playing. I, I think, I mean, even talking to you here today, I think anybody who didn't think any word that you've said, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's been a privilege for me to, to speak to you. And I think there'll be so many people out there which love an opportunity that I have at this moment in time that, you know, they're starting out or they want to learn more and, and they have your enthusiasm. And I think, you know, it, it, it's an absolute credit to you. I'll be honest, I mean, if if the likes of, I've, I've no acting experience, I've none of that whatsoever, um, or writing experience or, or being an author. But, you know, if, if if we were to be face to face or Kiefer Sutherland or Christopher Nolan or Stephen Smith, you would sit there in total awe because of what you, you guys have created. So it's mm. it's uh, that that's what I'm trying to get at is that I I, I just wonder sometimes do do you know you grab everything that somebody like you has to offer and and take it to to the next level can can I ask then Richard what what, what do you have in store anything planned for the future I know you're busy 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 but any new projects or anything you'd like to share uh, actually actually I do uh, I'm working with a career tech school uh, which is um, they have all sorts of, of tech that they do. They, they do programming, they do 2D animation, 3D animation. They even have culinary arts. Uh, but I'm working with this school to create programs 
uh, and classes that use AI and ChatGPT to become better storytellers, better communicators. Uh, we're creating both story-based uh, for, for non-tech professionals classes and then classes that are story-based for tech professionals because there's a difference in the way that, that folks who are in the tech world view information and the ability to convey it. And in some ways, they need storytelling in some instances, more than the folks who are the creatives, right? Because the creatives, they're used to sort of telling stories. Um, we just need to help them harness this new technology. So we're creating a whole host of courses and classes that are essentially AI enhanced storytelling classes. Wow. And will they be in person? Or are you going to do them via like Zoom or? We're going to do it Zoom. And actually they're going to be, uh, they're going to be coming up pretty soon, uh, I believe. Uh, we're talking I mean, we haven't nailed the dates down, but the, the first classes are going to take place through the end of July and beginning of August. And it's it's going to range anywhere from a single session class. that's just a real basic introduction to this whole concept, uh, really sort of an overview to uh, multi multi week, multi session classes that really take a deep dive in into this. So it's really, really exciting. And um, David, I, I'd like to I'd like to take a second, and sure. I'd like to give the, your listeners a challenge. Now, this is a very very simple. Is that is that okay? Can I take a second? Of course you can. You can take okay. more than a second. <laughs> this this is a very simple challenge. Don't 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 get all don't freak out. Okay. It's a very simple, fun, and and easy challenge. Okay. So during the next couple of days, what I would like for you to do is to slow down a little bit. I'd like for you to reflect on your day as you meet people, as you meet with people, as you work with people. I want you to reflect on the story and stories that you tell, that people tell you. I want you to think about that percentage of 85% of all of our communication throughout the day is through story or storytelling. Now, let me also let you know that this doesn't just account for outward storytelling. It doesn't have to be verbal. The storytelling can be verbal, visual, uh, and, and also it includes the stories that you're telling yourself internally. My wife and I call that grinding. You know, when, when you, you got an issue, you got a problem and you just can't let it go. And you're just grinding, grinding, grinding on the, on the story of what's happening in your life. And I want you to just step back and reflect on how story works in your mind and your communication. And then once you've done that, start thinking about how you can become a better storyteller, how you can tell that joke uh, you know, funnier, how you can tell a story about what you did this weekend uh, and make it more fun for, uh, for your listener. And then ultimately, how you can use story both personally and professionally to be a better communicator through life and get more of what you desire, what you want, what you're out to, uh, what you're out to do. And again, whether that's to sell a product or a service or help someone in you know, volunteering. Uh, but I want you to move through life and just reflect on how important and powerful story is in your communication with and from other folks. 
I will promise I shall do that. I've actually written it all down as well, Richard. Just oh, so fantastic. you know, I was, I was, I was, I was listening. I promise. So I'm going to slow down. I'm going to reflect on my day, and uh, I'm going to try to enhance my communication and my storytelling. Um, it's, it's, uh, no, it's been, it's been brilliant talking to you. I wanted to ask you something there, uh, Richard. So these classes you're starting in July and August, um, are they global or just generally focused on uh, uh, schools in America or or, or universities no, they're going to be global. They're going to be, be global. global. In, in fact, I'm in discussions with the school about doing, because uh, I, I was in a webinar uh, day before yesterday, and some of the folks that were online commenting said, you know, it's 1 a.m. here in Paris or England or where, and, and I thought, oh, you know what? We've got to offer a couple of different times. Yes. And what we're doing is we're staggering. <laughs> we're going to stagger the classes. We're going to start them on, I think, a Thursday. Right. And then the next week, uh, they're going to be on a Wednesday. And the next week, they're going to be on a Tuesday and a Monday. And then go back to Thursday. And we're going to offer, I think. Now, now you're in England, so, right? Or Ireland. Sorry. Ireland. No worries. Ireland. No worries, Richard. So, Ireland. Go ahead. <laughs> sorry. So you are, um, you are what, uh, seven hours ahead of Pacific Standard Time? Uh, I think it's plus... Eight. I think it's is it is is it eleven thirty where you are now? Uh, it is eleven thirty. Yes. Yeah. So plus eight. Okay. So what we're trying to do is figure out a time that uh, that would work in uh, in America. It might be a mid morning that right. uh, would put you all just after work. So we do ideally we do two sessions each day. Each time we do a session, we do like an eleven a.m. session here. So it would be. Uh, uh, to be what uh, seven thirty there or seven, and yep, um, seven. and then we do a, a later version that's more like uh, five p.m. here, but that would put it into midnight or one a.m. for you all. So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna accommodate that so that uh, so that more people can take part, and they're gonna be amazing classes. It's some of what we've talked about here, uh, but then uh, we dive into to uh, to some stuff in in, in an even deeper dive as well. And um, where will uh, you know? Where will they find the information? It will it be on your website. Will it be on social media? So It'll be on, actually... on all of the above. All the all above. The above. And actually, um, I don't know if you can update uh, your the the information. But once the information come on on attached to this podcast, but what we could do is we could uh, I could send a link once the information is available that you could potentially update that information if you if you can if you do. Yeah, that's no problem at all. Um, yeah, as soon as the podcast has been approved and released, I'll, I'll put all the links in um, to uh, to the podcast. Um, also, to say thanks so much to uh, to Richard for chatting with me today today on the Wellbeing Career Podcast. It's been I wish we had more time to be honest. Which it's it's just been it's been fascinating speaking to somebody like yourself. I did want to ask you another question, and I'm hoping this will be an inspiration for for others. So you mentioned. When this all started out, you you had a three minute black and white uh, called claymation. What was it about? It was very simple. It was a chess game in which the characters or the the pieces uh, chess pieces were made out of clay, and they essentially came. The the name of the movie was No One for Chess question mark, and essentially all the pieces came to life and played their own chess game without a human being moving them. And uh, and so the game plays itself and uh, mayhem ensues. <laughs> no, but it's an amazing you've said there, and this should be an inspiration to anybody listening, that you've mentioned, you know, it was, it was this kind of simple, simple game, uh, chess game. And now look at the career you've had 
because that's started off your passion and progressed throughout throughout your life. So uh, congratulations to you, Richard. And also I mean to say thanks so much for chatting today on the uh, the Wellbeing and Career Work podcast. Absolutely. David, I'd like to say one more thing sure. about that. And, and it's sort of transposing my experience to the current day experience for potential students or filmmakers or artists. There is such, there is so, so many possibilities for getting your work seen and out there. And it may seem very, very, uh, you know, you, you may be very uh, intimidated, but it's amazing how you can get videos out on TikTok and YouTube and, and all Facebook, all these various platforms and get seen. When I, when I was first coming up, you know, we had to, had to have a film projector or a, 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 a deck to play uh, a video on a TV. And so use that and know that you have opportunities that uh, that you know folks like me in the past did not have yes and so you can really take advantage of that and and things don't have to be complicated sometimes simpler is better and simple but simple but effective if something connects and it has it, it conveys some sort of an emotion that resonates with you and resonates with your audience that's going to ultimately be entertaining and people are going to move forward and, and sell your praises. How then, Richard, just to just add on a bit there. So it, it is such a competitive industry. So how then can an individual stand out? Um, you know, what, what is, do they knock on the doors of the studios? Do they knock on the doors of the publicists? How, how then now can, can they enhance their opportunities to, to get their, their work uh, seen? Um, well, sure. David, that, that's a fantastic question. And you know what? Technology is changing and is changing so quickly that I would, here's what I would do. I would refer your, use, your listeners to go to ChatGPT or BARD or Bing or any of the generative text models and type in, I am a filmmaker, I am a graphic designer, I am a musician or a composer or whatever you are, type that in and then start querying, start prompting ChatGPT, say, how can I network better? What can I do to find more clients? How can I be better at what I'm doing? What organizations can I contact to become a part of that will help me network? Because I mean, with with every freelancer, there's going to be a little bit different tweak on that, right? Right. And things are so very different uh, now than they were certainly when I was coming up, and and uh, and then they were, you know, five years ago, ten years ago, in terms of how you contact people, how communicate, how you communicate with folks. And so I would I would use the technology at hand and dive in a little bit, you know, spend a couple of hours. If you don't know how to use ChatGPT. This is a great exercise in terms of uh, approaching how to figure out how to use it and how to write prompts. Just uh, you know, sign up for ChatGPT or Bard or Bing or any any of these uh, engines, and and just start experimenting. And that will be it'll be both an education for you in terms of how to use the technology, but it's also going to be an education for you in terms of expanding your network, expanding your 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 reach, and expanding your experience. And don't give up. Is that the no, key? Don't give up. That's the key. Yes. Ne never ever give up. I'm going to ask you one more question yeah. before we go. Now um, hold on. Let me let me let me what? say, David. Let me say. 
when, when you say don't give up, you want to be smart about it. Yes. You, 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 you don't want to keep trying. If, if, if you've written a script and it just doesn't seem to be connecting with folks, you can't expect to, to try to go out and sell the same script, sell the same script, sell the same script, right? Um, I mean, there are stories about J.K. Rowling went to, you know, she went to uh, 69 different uh, publishers. Well, what they don't say is that this one publisher said, oh, you need to change this or you need to update this or you need to uh, alter this. They don't say what she did between publishers that may have made whatever, you know, the, the, her initial manuscript better. Right. So that's again, that's one of the things you can do is use technology to help you get better or make you better at whatever you're doing. So you want to you want to never give up, but you also want to get better so that giving up, you're not giving up on the best version of you that, that you're putting out there. And you're using your time wisely, as you said, which is which yeah. is the, which is the most important thing. And the question I want to ask you as well, that you probably did. Two kind of small ones. You mentioned there your 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 favorite actor. Um, what about your favorite director? Oh, uh, well, my favorite director to work with is a, is a gentleman named Davis Guggenheim, and he won an Academy Award for uh, An Inconvenient Truth. Okay. And he and I have worked together for close to thirty years. I'm trying to remember exactly, but it's close to thirty years. And we've worked together on so many projects. In fact, I, I did the, the movie still a Michael J. Fox movie uh, with him. And he is just uh, he's an amazing, amazing, creative person. He, he's very giving uh, and he's very thoughtful. And the projects that we work together on have have just we've worked together on TV shows and pilots and and uh, documentaries. It's just been an incredible experience uh, working with him and and all the people that he brings to, to work on a project. Wow. Okay. Fat, fat. I'm actually looking at a picture of him right now. Um, <laughs> there you I, go. I, I am. I I I see. It, it's it's you have so much background and knowledge. And if anybody doesn't use it, um, they're 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 mad, so to speak. Um, thanks so much, Richard, for chatting with me today. Um, we'll have to do this again if you don't mind. We can Sounds talk. Great. We can talk further in the future. Uh, we've been talking for an hour and forty minutes. Um, oh my gosh. Which is just it felt like it felt like we just got started. <laughs> honestly, no, but that's what that's what we know. I'd love to talk more. But what we'll do is we'll try and arrange even a, another podcast in the future once you have time, and maybe you can chat more about the classes that you're actually doing in the in the coming months and weeks, and explain a little bit more. Then, if if anybody else wants to get involved with that, oh, that'd be wonderful. Absolutely. So, thanks so much, Richard, for chatting me today. Thank you, David. It's it's just been a fantastic experience. Appreciate Thank you. It.